Okay. Hebrews chapter 12, and we are on verse 9. I had a little outline. Some of you weren't here last week, so let me give you this, the section on discipline began back in verse 7, and it's really an extended commentary here on Proverbs. There's a proverb about discipline that was cited, and then this is commentary on it. And the outline uh, of the argument here in Hebrews is, first of all, the necessity of discipline. That is revealed in Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. Secondly, the appropriate response to discipline, and that would be in verse 9. Uh, and then the benefits of discipline are found in verses 10 and 11. So the, the necessity, the appropriate response, and the benefits. Last week we were pointing out that um, being disciplined is evidence of sonship. Okay? And that every son who is a true son uh, of the Heavenly Father through being adopted into the family of God is disciplined. And the type of discipline under consideration for the, these Hebrews was the sufferings that they were going through. They were uh, persecuted. They lost friends because they were Christian. They were rejected by their Jewish brethren. They were considered uh, unfaithful sons to, as far as Israel was concerned. And some of them were being tempted to apostatize and because they didn't like what they were going through. And so one of the arguments here is that what they're going through isn't a sign that their faith isn't valid. It's a sign that they really are sons and that they're loved by God and that they are uh, experiencing the same thing everyone does who undergoes sonship. And now there's a, going to be an analogy where we're starting with verse 9 today. We, we did verses 6, 7, and 8 last week. And we have an analogy here about our earthly fathers disciplining us. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, this is a typical uh, Jewish argument, lesser to greater. You, you, both versions of this are found in the Bible. The lesser to greater or greater to the lesser. And it's, a, and it's an argument by analogy. And it goes like this. If this lesser thing is true, and usually the lesser in a, in a lesser to greater argument is something that everybody would agree to. It's a truism. Okay? So everyone would say, yes, we had earthly fathers that disciplined us. As a general rule, that's what families are like. That's how it works. So we would agree to that. So therefore, if the lesser thing's true, how much more then must the greater thing be true? Let me give you another example of a lesser to greater argument in the Bible. Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. That's the lesser. And, and they would agree, yes, God knows all things, so he would know a sparrow that falls. How much more does God care about you? Because you're of much greater value than a sparrow. So that's that same type of argument. And you'll find it all through the Bible, and it's a very Jewish type argument, and it's a valid, it's a valid argument. Okay? So, the lesser thing, we had earthly, earthly fathers to discipline us. Now, in the previous verse, it says if we aren't disciplined, we're illegitimate children and not sons. Okay? So the, 
you know, certainly there are cases where there are in families where there may not be a father or you may have a, a father that doesn't discipline or maybe they read, like I said last week, they may have read Spock, you know, and, and got the idea that goodness is built into children. If you just let them be themselves, all this goodness will ooze out. How many of you believe that? <laughs> Well, I was in, in, in vogue back in the 50s and 60s, and it's probably the reason us baby boomers are the way we are, right? <laughs> Spock was read by too many of our parents. But um, as a matter of fact, children who are disciplined by fathers and mothers, but generally the role comes to the father to, to dish out the discipline, and it certainly would be the case in this Hebrew uh uh, situation may not like it, but they are better off. And I think that objectively, you could argue that children that grow up with strong parental discipline end up a bit better off as adults. They're they're more likely to be able to step into a, a higher education. They're more likely to be able to step into a job and to have responsibility because they've been taught that good things that happen require discipline and that you just can't do what you want all the time. Now, the converse would be if you just let the kids run ragged, they're they're happier. Uh, I don't know if when, when you were a kid if you remember this, but there's probably some kid that got way less discipline than you did. Anybody remember that? <laughs> and at the time, weren't they enviable? Well, look at the, look at them. They get to do anything they want. They don't have to do their homework. They they can do anything they feel like. Well, that's enviable. But when they grow up, they're not enviable. <laughs> okay. Or the first time they get a job is a is a rude shock. You mean they expect me to actually do something? Yes. If you go to dog training, a dog craves you to be alpha wolf, and it craves discipline. How much more a kid needs discipline more than a dog? That's true. That's true. If you don't discipline your dog, you don't have a very good dog, do you? <laughs> All right. Yes, uh, Larry. Uh, well, just to add that, though, it shows respect for authority or disrespect for authority. Well, yeah, that's part of the problem. If if a person grows up without a father disciplining, it's more likely you're going to have disrespect for authority because you don't see the value of it. And And so then if you know some kid who's not being disciplined and you're a kid... It looks like they're the one to be envied. They get to stay out all night. They get to do anything they want. They get to run the streets. They get to do whatever they see fit. Whereas you have somebody saying, no, you can't do that. And if you do, you're going to be punished. So it looks like they're better off. But we all know now that we're adults that they weren't better off. And that they now, the undisciplined one, is one who's going to have a tougher time in life. It's got a, you know, they may still succeed, but it's going to be a lot harder. Because they're going to have to get it later in life. Maybe the first boss is the only person that ever disciplined them. What happens is either your father disciplines you when you're young, or society will impose discipline when you're older, either through bosses or through the police or through the jail system or through capital punishment. Somebody will, yeah, it's like the story Kathy told last week. The mom was, was spanking the kid in, in the store, and somebody, what was it that they said? They said, Look, and she's like, don't look at me like that, honey. I'm spanking him now so he doesn't shoot you later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Better to be spanked now than to shoot somebody later. Yes, Bert. Remember Bankston, the, the, the wife that came to church here for a while? He had been a pastor of Indians earlier, but he was a, uh, a farrier, a horse. And I spent a couple of days with him, and he would use his horse uh, training as a, as a basis for teaching Christian discipleship. And yes. He said, what good is a horse that isn't disciplined? But he would take a horse that was very unruly. Yeah. And he would tame it down and discipline it. He said, a son is no good if he can't, if he isn't disciplined. And use that as his... Uh, yeah, he made some really good analogies uh, from his from and he was really good at he could he there were horses they were going to shoot so that they wouldn't uh, and they wouldn't kill somebody and he could discipline them. He tell the owner he'd say now be prepared he's going to be either trained and calmed down or it's going to kill him. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it was a matter of the horse has to be disciplined or forget it. Um, yeah. Warren learned a lot of these things. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, I, he showed me what he did too. It's amazing what he could do. He could take hopeless horses, and he learned this from the Indians. He used to be a missionary, and they taught him how to train horses, and he was fabulous at it. Probably still doing it. I don't know if he's retired. Um, oh, Mike, sorry. Uh, one aspect of discipline that I had a lot of experience with is. It makes the person that's being disciplined aware of, of danger, aware of disaster, so that he can steer clear of it. And I think, you know, part of the discipline of the Bible is to make us aware of the disaster, which is the wrath of God hanging over the world. And so... This discipline is good for the person receiving it because he is aware of the danger, aware of the disaster, aware of the consequences. I used to train train police officers in survival, and I wanted them to understand what might happen, and when they perceived a certain situation, to change their behavior. I said, you really haven't haven't received the benefit of training unless when you get in that situation you do something differently. You change your tactics. So what this discipline is trying to do is to protect us and change our behavior so that we are protected. That's that's a good point. You know, think about it now. Those of us who have been parents and raised kids, don't we, uh, I know at least with my kids, the most severe discipline they would get is when I caught them doing something that severely endangered themselves. That would, that would, you know, like running out across the street or something like that. That's where we'd really bring down severe discipline. Why? Because they do something that doesn't endanger themselves, but it's something that annoys me. I'll just maybe tell them to quit it. But if they do something that could kill them, they get a good spanking. Why? Because it's what Mike's saying is true. Because it was of the of the radical danger. Now God has our best interest in mind. That's the point. And what we don't perceive as danger, God sees as very dangerous. That could destroy us. And so for the for the true child of God, 
he will bring severe discipline for us to perceive danger. That's what Mike was saying, and I agree with that. Yes, Kathy. Um, sure. So he, he learned how to have responsibility because he had to look look after your well-being. Yeah, so um, Gabriel. Why didn't he? Because he was irresponsible. Yeah, he was a bad father. Yeah, and, and so in the Bible, the father that neglects the, the children's discipline is a bad father and just serves as a bad example. Now, let, let's read the passage here. Um, I'm going to read 9 and 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Now, this is the lesser to greater. Shall we not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The lesser to the greater. For, now here's the analogy, they disciplined us for a short time. There is a difference. God has an eternal perspective. And as seemed best to them. Now, it's not saying that every father does it or does it right. They're doing what seems best to them. But it says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So we can, uh, there's degrees of how uh, well fathers are fathers. <laughs> they may you know, be very good at it, or they may be neglectful, or they may don't do their job at all. But that's degrees. But the argument is God is perfect. Amen. Right? And we can count on God perfectly disciplining us as we need out of his infinite wisdom. He's that much greater than earthly fathers. Yes. It says that the goal that God does that is so that we can share his holiness. That doesn't mean share his righteousness because that's been given to us by Christ. But is the, is the discipline um, so that our external actions conform to his holiness so that other people can see God's holiness in us? Or what does that mean? Okay, um, as I was reading this and studying it, there's, there's an already not yet aspect here. And I think ultimately that we share his holiness is eschatological. Because it's something that we have less of now, but it's still true now that we would grow in holiness, but that ultimately sharing His holiness is an eschatological thing Amen. that happens in the end. So it's an already not yet, as I understand it. And well, certainly it would be conformity to the image of Christ that, that comes in degrees and is progressive. We don't achieve righteousness because He disciplines us. We achieve righteousness because He. Because it's it's imputed. The holiness that becomes obvious maybe is to discipline me. I can think of all kinds of instances where you see a person under affliction, and because you see them under affliction and their actions under affliction, you perceive that that's something special. Yeah, there's a verse in the Bible, a psalm, that says, uh, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's one of our cross-references, but I, I remember that. Anybody else remember that verse? You know what it is? Take a look. <laughs> if you find it, I'll have you... Oh, you got, you're cheating. you got a computer to do it. <laughs> is it Psalm 119 something? Well, that's an awful long psalm. Okay, uh, okay it's... Uh, before I was afflicted, I went astray. So the psalmist in the Old Testament understood that God did this. Now, in their history, the Jewish history talks about this. Remember, the wilderness wanderings are, are, are called uh, discipline. And, and they, they 
went through all kinds of tough times and afflictions in the wilderness in order to be prepared to go into the promised land. Psalm 1967. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Okay, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Psalm 1967. But now I keep your word. Okay, let's back to our verse 9 here. We have earthly fathers to discipline us. Uh, again, that doesn't mean there are no such exceptions, but this is the general rule uh, uh, that we would understand. And we respected them. Now, one of the things that discipline is supposed to do is to teach us due respect. And that's due respect is something that tends to be, seems like as every generation comes and goes, there's less of it. But uh, I know when uh, my my wife has stories about this uh, in her family, and because her dad was really big on that, that you respected adults and elders, and and we used to hear children are to be seen and not heard. <laughs> I don't think it ever really happened, <laughs> but but the idea was very strong in the 50s and 60s that. Uh, all adult authority was to be respected, whether it was a school teacher, a bus driver, a police officer, um, somebody, just any of the adults at church. All adults in our world were to be respected by us back then. And that was, it wasn't deviated. There wasn't anybody willing to give you any slack. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, it was like the whole adult world that I knew was monolithic. Okay, they all, all of the adults in the world were in agreement with one another that us kids were up to no good and they weren't going to let us get by with it. (laughs) And if you wanted to get sympathy from an adult for whatever it was you wanted to do, there was none. You could not go to a school counselor and say, oh, my parents are too tough on me. You never volunteered to go to the school counselor. You only went there because somebody made you go to him. And when you went to him, he was just as well be a parent or anybody else. You're up to no good and you're not going to get by with it. That Was it, was it like that for you, Dick? It was different, but uh, my dad was a teacher, so they brought the whole thing in. So your dad was a teacher. Where are you going to go? <laughs> you know, it's heavy-handed. I mean, I'm thinking about this thing. It's heavy-handed, but did that happen in the 20s? What happened in the 60s? I don't know. Same thing happening now. Does it happen every 40 years that we go through this cycle? I don't know. I, but the 50s was very much like that. And, and I know that it changed. I know that it changed because, well, our daughter had a period of rebellion, which some of you know, but she's serving the Lord now. But there was a time where she wasn't doing so good. And I got her report card came. And there was 23 unexcused absences. And I said, well, no wonder you're getting a bad grade. He had 2,300 excused absences. Where, where were you? Oh, I was talking to the counselor. What? I said, if you'd go to class and study, then you wouldn't have to have a counselor. What are, the, what are we paying these people for? I'll tell you one thing. I didn't go talk to some counselor when I was there. There's no way I talked to a counselor. He'd, it was the worst thing he had ever happened. <laughs> go talk to a counselor. But now, but now they have counselors to hold their hand and... Oh, you poor thing, and your parents don't understand you, and blah, blah, blah. You know, so of course you want to go talk to him. He's, he's, he's buying your baloney. Yes. I was going to say that even when I was growing up, it was, if anybody was even older than you, they didn't have to be an adult. If you were eight and somebody else was a teenager, they were way above. <laughs> exactly. So, due respect. Yes. There, I went to 13 years of Catholic schools, 
Um, and, um, and I was taught the fear of God as well as people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's you know it certainly can be abusive. It's you know there, it's not just the more is better. I know most of us growing up aren't going to want a dad who is a drill sergeant, and that's the only role he has. You know, barking out orders and smacking us around or whatever. But on the other hand. To get no discipline is going to make life tough later because like somebody said, Keith or somebody, you're going to get it. You, you, you'll get it at a job or you get it from the police or, okay, Dick and then Jack and then Keith. Well, I'm just trying to get at the thing a little bit, but if you go back to what you're talking about, that era, you know, and as you always point out, that's 10 years younger than mine. You know. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> Tell us about the 40s, Dick. <laughs> 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 that was the culture. Yes. That was the culture. Everybody understood the game, and that was fine. The 60s changed the game. You know, the one thing about don't trust anybody over 30, uh-huh. that part. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, the Vietnam thing and all the stuff in the streets, it said basically there are no rules anymore. And then it's sort of like youth reigns. And then the marketing people picked it up, youth reigns. And so you've got a culture shift that we're dealing with now. Yeah. My generation grew up. We grew up under the authoritative, didn't like it, and when we when we decide when we're the adults, it's not going to be that way. And so then another generation's raised with the let 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 the kids do whatever they want. Authority is a bad thing. Okay, the Gen X, you know. And I, I when I was at seminary, some person who was an expert in that game, I was talking to us, and they grew up, according to this guy, feeling unwanted because they weren't disciplined. Like that judge in New Hampshire, I mean Vermont. Oh. Yeah, so anyhow, Jack has something to say, but let's focus on the point is that God doesn't have any of these problems. Okay? All right? That we may have uh, too severe a parent who is just like a Nazi, <laughs> or you might have one that's lax and just lets you run the streets so you don't get any discipline, or you might have one that's nicely balanced. But one thing is for sure, God won't make any mistakes in His. It says they discipline us as seem best to them. He disciplines us for our holiness, and He does it perfectly. Now, the point is, submit to God. If you're you're coming under the discipline of the Lord, don't run away because you don't like it. Because if you do, you're making yourself an illegitimate child. Did you have something to say? Essentially, what I wanted to say is that in, in parenting, you can impose your will, if you will, uh, but you may not earn their respect. However, if you if you let them see that you are indeed under discipline yourself, mm-hmm. you're submitted to the Lord as you're disciplining them, then that respect carries through. Good. Yes. Carla. I think there's the whole facet that's brought out well there, too, that God disciplines us for our good. And parents that are disciplining their children... For the child's good, the child, the child seems to know. I mean, you, I think they know that in general. Whereas if you have, you know, say somebody who's too strict, it's maybe just for their own, you know, for other reasons other than for the child's good, for their own reputation, or for some. Or just because they're they're an angry person. Because they're an angry person. Yeah. For the child's good, I that result manifests itself in a lot of ways. You'll know it eventually. 
Yeah. When you grow up, you can tell, look back and see whether your parents had your best interest in mind or not. I think that the lesser to greater also works out. There's often times when as a kid I want to do what I wanted to do, but I also want to do well in school and I also want to do this and that. Uh, more on a long-term basis, my father helped me uh, overcome the things that I wanted to do short-term so that I thought that the things the long-term Absolutely. were more important. And in the same way, God, I have the same battle now. There's appetites and lusts and things that I would rather do in the short-term and that the eternity is a long ways away, and God helps me. Uh, to see that it is real. The eternity is really more important because he will impose you know, his uh, discipline on me to let me know. Yeah, that's a good point. So God has our long-term interest that we might share his holiness. We don't see long-term because we, we're finite. Yes. I see another verse in Psalm 119.71. Yes. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And, the, and then off to the side, I've got an example of Luke 15, the prodigal son. Okay, so it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71. All right, let's, let's look up some more. I'm going to do people in the front row because we lost our mic, so now I have to catch it on here <laughs> and then amplify it later. Um, Brian, number 1622, Denise. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. Uh, Linda, uh, the first Linda here. <laughs> Isaiah 57, 16, and then, and then Linda, Zechariah 12, 1, and Kathy, Malachi 1, 6, and Keith, 1 Peter 5, 6. I'll, I'll read the list again for people that are jotting them down. Our cross-references are number 16, 22, Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, Isaiah 57, 16, Zechariah 12, 1, Malachi 1, 6, 1 Peter 5, 6. Okay, Numbers 16.22. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? Okay, that passage, here's why we looked up Numbers 16.22. God is called the God of the spirits of all flesh. Because this terminology, the Father of spirits, is very unusual. All right? And I've heard false teaching based on this. Um, I uh, let me tell you the false teaching now that I got your interest. Well, um, there's a, a, a the false teaching comes from Washman Nee and people of that ilk, and it's the idea that uh, sanctification is anatomical. All right, and so they say your spirit is already perfected, your soul is is. Uh, perfectible, but it's trapped between the, the evil body and the good spirit. And so, if according to Watchman Nee and others that teach this, then sanctification is about your soul learning to listen to the spirit rather than the body. And, uh, and, and so, there's this supposed aspect of us uh, that's perfected already, which is the spirit, and then the human spirit. And it's, and it's not just watching your knee. You hear people like Kenneth Copeland talk about that, learning how to listen to the voice of your spirit. And and when I was trying to do that in the 70s, I just was no good at it. I'm thankful I was no good at it. I just I, I had too much intellectual or something. I just couldn't listen to my spirit. I never figured out what it was saying. Uh, later, I found out oh, it's just flat-out false doctrine. The whole person is corrupted, and, when, and as far as sanctification, both imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, it's it's a whole thing. The whole person is, receives the imputed righteousness of Christ, not just the spirit, and the whole person grows in holiness, not just parts of us. And dividing us up 
tripartite anatomically is not going to help us grow in holiness. In, and they, they use this verse to prove it. He's the father of our spirits, but not our, our souls are just don't get it yet. So now, uh, I at the time I thought it seemed plausible. It does say that here. Well, it, it's an it's a an allusion to Numbers sixteen twenty two, and the terminology just comes out of the Old Testament. That passage. Could you read that one more time, Brian? And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? Okay, so that's where the terminology alludes us back to numbers. Now the father of spirits in numbers was God disciplining his people. That's what that passage is about. God is disciplining the camp. All right? And so they, uh, that's why we have that terminology. Not so we think our spirits are perfected. Um, then the next passage was Deuteronomy twenty-one, eighteen to twenty-one. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious; he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And that would not be good to be a rebellious teenager back then. You go, you take the mother and father, both are involved. They take the rebellious teenager and says... Our son is a drunkard and a glutton, and he won't listen to us. And you bring him to the elders, which at the gate, that's where they did their judging. The elders were to pass judgment. Um, wow. A little different today with a teenage son or daughter, a friend of mine, Cal Jones, his sister, rebellious son, and they called the cops, and the police took her to jail. Rudy Mesa, another friend of mine, if there's a family disturbance with a teenager, somebody's going to jail. So Rudy decided the father that he'd go in place of his son. So a little different today from the old covenant where they uh, put him to death. You might be hauled to jail. Yeah. Do right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So well, that was a that was a pretty strict rule they had in back under the old covenant. It was very very strict. But now, why would that rule be so strict? God gave the law. What was what was the point of it? Um, Israel was God's covenant people, and through their survival as a people comes Messiah. And a lot of laws in the Old Testament were ensuring the survival of Israel as a distinct people that would keep the, the carry along the promises of God. Yes. At that time, it's part of the government of the of the kingdom of God that was manifest in Israel because he didn't have king when that was given. So the whole concept of civil government was embodied in the parents, and it was a very real part of the police force was the parents themselves. The parents were the police force, okay. Um, now, well, the next passage was Isaiah fifty-seven sixteen. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. Okay. So it said the spirit would... Oh, I think that's another reference to that Father of Spirits. Yeah. Um, I think that's another uh, use of that phrase, Father of Spirits. That's why we had that one. 
And then Zechariah 12.1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Okay, there's another reference to the Father of Spirits. He forms the spirit of man within him. They're talking about the whole inner person. You know, there's a debate about tripartite, you know, Father, body, soul, spirit, or you know, dipartite, or however they say it, bipartite, would be just the soul. The spirit and the soul are basically the same thing. And different theological positions take one one or the other. It really doesn't matter because one way or the other, uh, we come to God as a whole person. Okay. Now, uh, Malachi one six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Okay, now there's the lesser to greater argument coming from God himself through the mouth of the prophet. You're going to listen to this and that, but you won't listen to me. So God is greater. Yes. That's the thing with the debate coming up, that same verse you could use because, say, in what way do we despise your name? Because you don't, as God said. You don't listen to what he said. That's a good, yeah, maybe we better make a slide for that one. We had a big debate Friday night. I think, by the way, we're going to need some volunteers. We're going to need security. We're going to need people to help find parking out here. I'm starting to get rumbles that a lot of people, we may have a big house full of people. I got a call from a pastor last night that works with us on Hands Across the City who was asking me about it. And he doesn't like debates. He thinks it breaks the unity of the body. But he says, I'm coming to this one because I, I, he saw that thing on, on Nightline or whatever the other night. There was a thing about the emergent church on, yeah, and a couple of them were here in Minnesota. There's one called Bluer or something. And so he says, well, this, this thing is a little weirder than I thought it was. I want to come to the debate and see what, what, what's, what's up. So we could have a, a big crowd here Friday night. So. Um, probably by like 6.15. It's at seven, but yeah, yeah we need we're, we need to be out here. Yes. Can I read just one thing, a little context to get people interested? Okay. Here's a here's a from the the guy's book. Church reimagined by Doug Paget. Yeah, Doug Paget. I'm debating. He wrote a book called Church Reimagined. He goes the chapter is spiritual formation through physicality. It starts out with Christian yoga, and it goes. Our last pose of the evening is called Shavasana. Shavasana. Or corpse pose. The student lies on her back, letting her legs fall open as they will. The arms hang limp like empty coat sleeves. The face, the forehead, the space between the eyebrows, all relax. And the person melts heavily to the floor. Eyes are closed. Breathing is rhythmic. I turn the lights off, and only the glow of candles and sometimes the fireplace illuminates the room. This state of being is holy. It is at this time that we become closer to God aware of our bodies of the divine. The clutter that can be with God's presence in our life has fallen away and we are open to God's love and God's will. Slowly people get up, talk, and commit to a daily practice of yoga in hopes of getting this feeling again and again. We are hesitant to believe this moment of shared reverence, this experience of worship. Yeah. So they're, they're doing a, a, a yoga pose called the corpse and the claim is that it gets you cl- holy and closer to God. Now how's that from means of grace, Ryan? <laughs> so the the debate in in the in the debate 
My claim is that God himself determines how we come to God, not man. And I'm going to argue that that there are boundaries, okay, and that we can't come to God any way we see fit. And I'm going to see if I can't get him to agree to that, that there are boundaries, or whether he'll say there are no boundaries. So it's either there are boundaries or there are not boundaries. And if there are, then the next step is either God determines the boundaries or man. All right? Yeah, yeah, we're going to go back and forth. Uh, we're going to make DVDs, CDs, everything. Yes. Um, one thing I think is important is to let people understand what yoga is and aligning yourself with the, the uh, serpent spirit, I believe. Yeah, Brian Flynn. Yeah, Brian. Flynn. I showed this stuff to Brian Flynn, and he said this is the worst stuff I ever saw. It's, it's a new age, yes. Bringing, you know, the whole issue of coming to God on His terms and the means that He's provided is really a point of Hebrews. Um, and we, uh, if you look throughout Hebrews, and that's the concern is they're going to go back to the Old Covenant and go back to the Temple, go back to the old sacrificial system, go back to uh, the guidance that um, was there rather than the Holy Spirit. And I think we relate that to discipline now is discipline is brings us back and for instance you talked about when I even saw my one nineteen talks about this. Yes. You know, um, I was uh, afflicted but now I learned your statutes. And we see that in Hebrews is we need to rest in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and come to him through his word, through prayer. And through, we must not neglect the gathering together over all these things, but come to him on his Absolutely, the means of grace. And that, that the Hebrews, the other Hebrews established this. <clears throat> yeah, and there's another lesser to greater argument I would use, okay? I would say this. If something that what one time was ordained by God, the high priest, the temple sacrifices, the day of atonement, the, all the things that God gave, yeah, the dietary laws. If it's apostasy, according to Hebrews, to go back to something that at one time was ordained by God, how much greater apostasy is it to go to something like yoga that was never ordained by God? Amen. Yeah, I like that. I think I'll use it. <laughs> I think the debate's going to be interesting. So, uh, yes, Mike. How does this... Um idea of discipline relate to the doctrine of election and assured salvation? Well, it, the, the idea of the doctrine of election is that God chose people out of the world for adoption as sons, men and women. You know, sons is a generic term, means anybody who's a child of God, okay? And having done so, God has brought us into his family and therefore, we're his. And being his, he's in charge of our discipline. So if we look at this discipline, we can look at it as evidence of uh, our election. Yeah, it's an evidence of salvation, that, that we're the Lord's. And if, and, and if um, it's like in First John, it talks about the one born of God doesn't sin. And when you read that on the surface, it's pretty scary because, uh, you know, who could say they don't sin? But as we've talked about in First John, when we study through that, is that it's a present continual sense. What it what means is if you're born of God, you can't just go on sinning however you see fit 
without any guilt or without any concern. Because once you're born of God, there are now two things at work. The flesh and the spirit. Right? And when you're not born of God, all you have is the flesh. And all you live for is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And you and the world are kind of on the same plane, right? You know, you're just trying to get what you can out of life. Once you're born of God, now the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And now you can't just go do whatever you want to do without God convicting you and saying something needs to change. And so that would be evidence of salvation, that you're convicted when you sin. So it should fly in the face of the doctrine that says you're sick because you're not spiritual. No, it's just the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Yeah. It, it definitely works for me. It gets my attention. When I was, I, I was sick for six weeks last year. Okay, Lord, what do I need to do? <laughs> yes. If you look at the prodigal son, if he would have had unbroken success when he left his father, that would have been a curse. He would have stayed prodigal. Yeah. The only reason it didn't happen was because the love of the father was working in him and had been brought him back. If you look at First John, when it says they went out from us because they were not part of us, the fact that they went out and stayed out was evidence of that same That time. they weren't sons. Yeah. If they were true sons, That's God would bring them back. Amen. God will do whatever it takes. Amen. All right? Now, so when I teach, uh, there's this doctrine called once saved, always saved, and I don't use that terminology because that's not what I teach. I teach perseverance. And the difference is once saved, always saved gives people assurance based on mental assent and tells them that they're going to heaven if they spend the rest of their life serving Satan. All right? That's false doctrine. That is not true. But uh, perseverance means what Keith was just saying. If I'm a true son, God will do whatever it takes, even if it means killing me. I don't think you'll have too much fun sinning. Uh, no, exactly. It's, God will bring us back. So perseverance means people don't continue on in sin. They actually change because God works the discipline to cause them to change. So that's a good distinction, right, uh, Ryan? We, we, don't, we don't teach that crass, once saved, always saved. It, it's the Bible against it. It speaks about if, you know... You, you know, if you continue, you will be presented before him. Right. So those exhortations are always, even in Hebrew. Yeah, and then you have the you have the parable of the sower and the seed, that where you see people that you know come and they're all excited about Christianity and they go out and drop away and never serve God. Yeah, so ask, there's no assurance. When, when we are continuing and persevering, we ask why are we persevering and why are we continuing? It's not because of us, because we're better, because we're God's we're grace. Moral, moral or anything. It's because His grace is yeah. us, us God won't let us go. He'll go out and get us and bring us back. And He's very good at that. <laughs> yes. Then Larry, you're next. In Romans 5, beginning it says, More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Absolutely. Because we're Christians, we, we rejoice in our sufferings. Yeah, there's hope in the sufferings. Yeah, that's a good fact. I had that for cross-reference on a couple verses down, so that's a good one. Absolutely. There's... Christians going through sufferings, we're seeing hope in it because 
we see God at work, just like He did with the wilderness wanderers, that proved that the Israelites were really His people. And that's where Hebrews draws a lot of analogies out of the wilderness wanderings. You know what, uh, before I get to you, Larry, um, you know what I want to do, uh, Ryan? You were, th- we were mentioning that Hebrews really does speak to this thing of these spiritual disciplines and, and mysticism. When I get any time now, I'm going to try to preach a sermon that covers the book of Hebrews in one sermon. Um, yeah, yeah, it took us four years, but see, it was just a training ground here. But, there, the, but see, the reason I feel the need to do that is that if you can't, if it takes, you know, if you do the intensive four years, if you know it well enough, you should be able to, I did that once on, we did a radio show and I did the entire book of Romans in one radio show. But that was after I'd studied Romans through four times. The better you know something, the more simple it gets. Um, because the problem is that we need this in message capsulized so that it would have impact. The whole message would be, go in one setting. Here's the message. And then make some applications to the contemporary church that's being seduced into practices that aren't going to make us closer to God. I mean, if somebody literally believes that laying dead like a corpse is going to cause holiness, we've got some kind of a problem. We're not understanding the book of Hebrews very well. Okay, Larry, I promised you, you're next. Yeah, uh, you know, also this obedience thing. Uh, I was looking at that passage in Philippians. I think there's another one where I think it says in the Bible, depending on the translation, that Christ learned obedience. That's in Hebrews. I think Hebrews 2 or 3, somewhere. Okay, he, so he learned there is a process of learning, and even him as our example is for that to follow. Absolutely. That's another greater, the lesser argument. If the perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who is sinless, learned obedience through the things he suffered, that's in Hebrews, how much more do we, imperfect sons, need to learn obedience through the things we suffer? Uh oh. <laughs> you say that every once in a while, Larry. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Dean. Uh, I'm glad Larry was before me because now I think my question will be a little bit more relevant. But can you comment on the difference between consequence of sin and obedience or uh, discipline from God? Well, consequence uh, now, all right, would be. Um, natural consequences do the fact that God does give us law to protect us and that the things he tells us not to do are harmful. Amen. And doing things you're not supposed to do brings natural consequences. Families get damaged. Uh, you, you lose jobs. You end up in jail. Not only sometimes I steal yeah, exactly. That's why I'm distinguishing here. Okay, some, some people can beat the natural consequences. Because they've got good genetics. Uh, you know, or they're just lucky or whatever, you know. I mean, because you'll see somebody just doing whatever they see fit and they're just seem to be quite happy and they're living to a ripe old age. But so the consequences are a natural thing and they're not necessarily universally the same. But God's discipline is supernatural and it's something He's in charge of. Okay? And so it goes beyond just consequences. It goes to God directly intervening. Um, to get our attention, to get us to think about what we need to do and what we need to change. Yes? And when you look at this passage, I, I, I say and I really believe that unbroken success is a curse because if all you had in success 
and you're like, you made this decision, and all you have is success in going forward, having this plan, and having it accomplished. It said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I don't think you can help from going astray. And that it's God's grace that we do have setbacks, and it's God's grace yes. that we do have afflictions, because without them, we really would go astray. We would never come to God whatsoever. And we wouldn't learn. I totally agree, Keith. And I know for a fact, um, when I... A little story about just me being in the ministry. Uh, Dick knows all my story. He was part of the story. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that wisdom he gained during the 40s, that decade that I missed. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, I, I, we had some difficulties in the church and st- starting in 1989, we were losing members 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, every single year we had less donations, less members. Every single year. Now, I wasn't the senior pastor at the time. And I thought, the problem is, I'm not in charge. <laughs> right? And that if I could just, you know, do it the way I think we should run the church, everything would be great. Well, lo and behold, in 1995, I became senior pastor. And I want to tell you, I had a quite a church growth uh, thing. I, when I took over, we had a, about 160 people, and with by 199 or by the year 2001, after six years, I had it down to 70. <laughs> 2002. So that was my church. But see, they went out from you, but they weren't. Out from you. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know that. I, I'm not saying that. No, no. But anyhow, my, the point was, I had, it forced me to come to grips with this, there's a lot of things that are in God's hands that we can't just make some decision and it's going to be better. What if for, the fact that I started out without success and, and it got worse and worse. In fact, I was in such dire straits that I was just sick of it. Didn't even want to keep doing it. Keep, keep being in the ministry. And then I heard John MacArthur in 1998 was a turning point for me spiritually. Uh, it, when I, I heard him preach a sermon um, about restoring the disheartened pastor's joy, and, and you know what he said would restore your joy? Focusing on the blessed privilege of preaching and proclaiming Amen. the gospel. Amen. And that there's no greater responsibility and there's no greater privilege than to be a bearer of the good tidings Amen. of salvation. And that if you are able to reach one person Amen. with the gospel, this is an eternal value beyond all comparison. And uh, that was such a profound message. I got to thank him for it because I was with Jan on the radio when we interviewed him, and I thanked him for that message. 1998, I still have it on my computer. Um, the church kept shrinking, but I didn't lose my joy after that. Even in 2003, when we were at our lowest point, uh, when our daughter was in the hospital, almost died, she almost died. Uh, we had to put the building for sale because we couldn't pay the rent or couldn't pay the upkeep. And I, I never got that down again. Even at that point, I don't remember being nearly as morose as I was before 1998 because nobody ever took away the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. And if you were here, then at that stage, we're talking about afflicting 
afflictions leading you into the right place. That's what it did for me. Affliction led me more and more and more gospel-centric. Not that I didn't always believe it, but it became more of a focus because of uh, the afflictions the Lord allowed to come. You have one more verse before you wrap up. Okay. Well, I have... Yes, Keith. Uh, 1 Peter 5.6. Boy, you're very patient. <laughs> I'm not accused of that very <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought it didn't, it, it, didn't seem very, it didn't seem right applying patience to you, I know. But uh, you were today. So 1 Peter 5.6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the rev- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is. It, the, that the trials are proof of our faith. And, it, and it's like putting gold into the fire. It's only going to get more pure. So if, if the fire, if you're going through the fires, whatever they may be, and you believe the gospel, be comforted because God is turning you into pure gold so that you might share His holiness. And good things come out of it. And God is a loving Father and He won't allow us to be tempted above what we're able. But I'm going to talk about that. The sermon's going to talk about this too. Because we're going to talk about Joseph being tempted by Potiphar's wife and fleeing from it. That's going to be the sermon. Uh, uh, Genesis 39. Yes, Dick. I just had one, one request, and that's when you do that sermon on Hebrews, yes. you warn us that it's coming so we can bring a lunch. <laughs> he said, hey, what I'm going to do is Hebrews in one sermon, we're going to bring, he's going to bring a lunch so that, bring a bag lunch. Okay, um, next week we'll start on the next verse.